0: Asala Puja mm. This commemorates the day when the Buddha taught the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path Majima Padipada, the middle way as it's called he mm. it already realized his awakening um, a few months earlier in Bodhigaya, when he'd realized the cessation of suffering and he'd seen these truths or recognized where suffering originates from craving and clinging and becoming this kind of unconscious reflex that sits in the heart always tumbling forward into things, tumbling on into the possible and the imagined and the feared and the expected and the next. It's a kind of momentum that is moving on into, and actually when you look at it, realize it's moving on into something that's just the imaginary, really. Because we don't know anything about the future, and it's that bit that hasn't happened yet. But there's a tremendous momentum to tumble into it to feel secure, and not just in terms of future, but also we tumble into the constructions that the mind makes, our identity, you know, if you come into just a momentary, momentary awareness, just of being here, there's not an identity to that, it's just a, uh-huh, No, it's just sight, sound, feeling of being contacted, trembling, whatever. But there's no particular identity in that. But then there's that wanting to firm up experience into some identity. So we tumble into that, trying to make that long and lasting and good and bad and interesting and acceptable to others and make it work and things of this nature. It's tumbling in. And this creates this tremendous momentum. And you can see that. And, you know, what's it like when you see that this itself is stressful and doesn't go anywhere, doesn't get to the end of it, it never arrives anywhere. It just keeps tumbling. (laughs) And it's so taken for granted as... Reality, normal way of being, which it is, of course, for most people. But when you review it, this is really pretty limited way of living because where does it tumble on to? Death. <laughs> you know, after the next thing, or the next thing, or the next thing, and then what's all that about? <laughs> what's the point of that? So, of course, most people don't think of anything else but that possibility. But seemingly, the Buddha, just through his power of his meditation practice, could see yeah, that you can step out of that and feel a sense of clarity and strength and steadiness and peacefulness. You don't have to become something. You don't have to get into that momentum. There's that possibility, you see, there's a possibility, there's suffering, and there's not suffering. There's the source of stress, and there's, there's the non-stress. But, you know, <laughs> and there's tremendous drives, called asawa, or corruptions, or outflows, which, like, reflexes that just keep the mind running, the next creating something you mean just what it takes to sit quietly without your mind either rehashing something that happened wondering about what you're going to be wondering whether you are going to get it right or how long this can going to go on for or what other people there's always this stuff going on It's trying to create something you know, satisfactory and solid but it doesn't it doesn't happen <laughs> and how to how to kick that reflex not easy yeah. mm. after his own awakening he began to review this whole process of becoming and clinging and craving contact is born out of contact something touches and oh that means we light up that's that we go for it contact doesn't just mean something touches it means the mind is impressed in some way that's that's delightful that's friendly, that's hostile that's strange That's and then it's like oh that means this it's like getting going on it building it up on what? On a, on a premise on an assumption on a, often on a bias or a prejudice of some kind a phobia or a pathology even you start to something touches and you see oh that's that, that's that, that's that fear and then you start going on that one and this is happening all the time and it's not a small thing based on this is all the genocides, racism, religious wars (laughs) based upon assuming what I see, what I think is real and you know, and you're my enemy or you don't count, or you're the other side and failing to see this is a fellow being born with sorrows and joys, virtues and problems. yeah. Why can't we get together and share something? Instead, this identity thing. He's one of those, I'm one of these. You know, crash. And the whole, everything starts rolling on. Suffering external world, you could say. The internal world of one's impressions, Assumptions, wishes, um, prejudices, wells up, outflow, flows out into what we see and hear, colours everything in accordance with that. The world becoming. So, when the Buddha, first of all, he didn't think it was possible to really show away with this, how to get out of it, to teach it, but persevered, and I guess he did a bit of reflecting and thinking as he walked along to Varanasi, to Deer Park, you know, those people I've practiced with, maybe they'd be sort of a bit more tuned in. To this practice, because they they've done some spiritual work, so maybe they'd be ready for it. So he comes along, okay? And he starts talking about extremes. You know. And extremes of indulgence, mortification. He starts talking about extremes. Uh-huh. You know, like right, what's that gonna do with anything? It says, you know, but the Buddha teaches the middle way between extremes. This is the middle way. Mm. And that's his statement when he describes it sammadiddhi, samma and so forth, right view or sammadiddhi, or complete view or whole view mm. full perspective rather than personal perspective. Or a limited perspective full complete view. So what is this right view? And although often you know people want to meditate or begin with mindfulness as practice, but no the Buddha said right view comes first, then right attitude, right effort, then right mindfulness. Otherwise if you start with wrong view, you get wrong effort, wrong mindfulness, wrong concentration, and wrong results. So just make an effort to establish right view. This is make an effort to establish right view mm? between the extremes of nihilism, eternalism, you yeah? know, between annihilation senses, indulgence in the senses. So balance is being suggested there. And it's that quality of that balance which is being suggested, yeah. That is the epitome, if you like, the image of the path and the practice is maintaining balance from the extremes of view. Streams of perspective, balance between, say, the internal world and the external world. And, uh, and there's this deep intelligence that's needed to sustain that balance. But it says right view. There is good. There is a result of good deeds, the result of giving, of offering sacrifice. Wrong view, no good, no result of good deeds, no result of giving, offering, sacrifice, no worth, no consequence. Mm-hmm. But in this, just even this beginning of right view, what's being stated is everything proceeds from that particular view. That is, if that right view is established, it channels how you're going to act. It also recognises that your action extends beyond yourself into the world around you. There's going to be a consequence for other people and for yourself. So it extends both in terms of other people. It also extends into you know what developments can occur for you, where your mind is going to go, what the track it's going to be on. So it's looking at that. Then you get that sense of poise because it counts which way your mind dips, goes, inclines. There's poise, it's reading it. Uh, and the next thing is samasankapa, it's the refraining from violence, which we generally mean is something like gentleness, kindness, yeah. refraining from. Cruelty or callous, we become more sensitive. Tuning to sensitive to the welfare of others. We're receptive, we're not dismissive, we're not numbed out. And third, renunciation. We're prepared to relinquish sense data, sense pleasure. Because we feel there's something more important than that. So, we have a choice that doesn't matter, what matters is not the sense data, but the qualities of heart, the qualities of virtue, the qualities of morality, the qualities of generosity, the qualities of loving kindness, the qualities of sensitivity towards others, and how we affect each other. And that's really important to establish that. And then whatever rises up through that foundation, we can maintain it, is going to be right speech. Right. The first way really in which we contact another person is talking. Big one. <laughs> yeah. And talking the internal qualities rise up and are received by another person, or they hear something. They hear something. <laughs> and this is where it gets interesting, because what they hear isn't necessarily what rose up in your heart. So it's, they say, one of the big mistakes about communication is imagining that it actually happens. Without quite a bit of, uh, wait a minute, how's that, you know? Backwards, forwards and listening, you know? So it is a tremendous practice in which we can never be surprised if people didn't quite get it right, or got a detail wrong, or misunderstood, or, you know, felt offended, or, you know? Because you realize, hey, we're now realizing the external world isn't necessarily in sync <laughs> with the internal world and this is pretty important because <laughs> the external world in a way includes everyone else how going to live in harmony with others mm. yeah you describe right speech, you know one is refrains from a harsh speech. It doesn't really matter what you say specifically, it's just that the, the mode of it is not is not well, it's deceitful. It actually is as true as you can make it. In fact, even, as you, you should always say, it seems to me that, because you still don't know if you, you've actually got it right in the first place. It seems to me that, rather than you. <laughs> it seems to me that, you know. It's a good thing to remember, because you don't know. And it's much better to place that as a kind of possible, rather than, you know, it is. <laughs> uh, so actually telling the truth it seems to me, it feels to me, like this, I have the view that this is like this, I heard it like this, it seems to me that, you know, and tell the truth, and really get as as truthful as you can, like I'm not entirely clear, but it seems, Yeah. And that invites the other person to say, well, oh really, Well, I think it, then you go, well let's work it out together what actually is going on. And this is beautiful, because once we recognize, often we don't really know the truth, we know our truth, and you know your truth, and maybe if we put them together with an attitude of interest and friendliness, the truth will will arise. (laughs) And so it encourages relationship, doesn't it? Harmony. Because even if you got it wrong, if you're not, you know, proud about it or demanding that you get it right, you got it wrong. So, well, it seems to me then, oh, oh, right. I see what you mean. I got it wrong. Then there's no problem with that. So refraining, just being truthful. Yeah. When you're trying to be truthful, one of, the, one of the little thing to remember is: is it's very difficult to use the word. You careful about the word "you" when you're being truthful, because when you say "you," you assume that you've got an accurate, totally clear truth about the other person. This is extremely unlikely. <laughs> And what are you referring to? Oh, that action. I felt unhappy about that action. Okay. That's that's pretty true. Or I enjoyed that action. Rather than you are. Or even you did. Because you don't know. The things you train yourself, there's a balance there, isn't there? Whether you're never really grabbing onto a perception as a a reality, you balance. But what you do know is you want that communication to move, spirit of kindness, goodwill, sensitivity, there where your mind is much straighter even exaggerating you try to avoid or you admit I'm exaggerating because I'm quite unhappy so it's making me stirs me up quite a bit okay right speech tell the truth cursing harshness avoid that cursing and just filling people up with Babble, so the mind loses its listening capacity, its attentiveness, because it's just flooded with material. Mm. So you cultivate these and your mind is in this balance, it's also you realise with that this quality called Uju, I means straight, upright, is beginning to crystallise. Yeah. Most of us would like to live in a decent way, I'm sure. But that remains like an idea, a a wish, an aspiration. With qualities such as right view, right action, uh, right speech, you begin to feel something and you're just checking what you're doing and really careful now. And it becomes firm. Yeah. Yeah. And you value that uprightness more than, say, getting your own way or making some kind of cheap remark or... You know, no, this uprightness feels pretty good. Yeah, I can rely upon it. It makes me feel strong and centred. And I can give up kind of, you know, getting my way or manipulating or something or the other. It really is uh, essential. Mm. The sangha practitioners are called ujjupatipano. They're people who practice ujju. They practice it straight, upright. Yeah, No waffling. Mm. Someone who wants to cultivate uh, metta-sutha loving-kindness says, one should be Saku ujucha, suhu jucha, saku suku ujucha, suhu jucha. which means something like truly capably upright, really upright, <laughs> you know. Before you can really open that quality of loving kindness. And it happens naturally. Because mm. the upright mind is sensitive. And it sits, and you realize with the upright mind, you realize that sits in the center of a world of a reality in which there's my moods, my feelings, some of them skillful, some unskillful, confused, powerful, you know, joyful, miserable, there's all that moving around. And of course, there's what comes in impressions of the world around me come floating in. Sometimes whirling in, all is stirring up, we call it the field the karmic field. right That's where we live. You look around, it looks like you're living in a house or a building or something other. Like that. That's just the visual perception actually where you where your real where your're living is, where your real <laughs> is in your karmic field, right. This means the impressions that are moving through your chitta your heart, dependent upon what's seen, heard, imagined around you, what's remembered, what energies are in your body, feelings and so forth. You're sitting in all that. right? And all of it's volatile. All of it you can act upon or react to or identify with or dismiss or feel overwhelmed by or feel excited by. And all that. The potential for action there is tremendous, but in the middle of that, you've got like the upright axis. Which is, wait a minute, which one do you want to pick up? So the right view is, is pick up. There is value in giving, in offering, in relinquishing. Pick up that one, learn it wisely, and uh, yeah. It is wrong. Make an effort. Make an effort. Filter out. Uh, the value the value of that. You've got to make an effort with it. Because if you just absorb, you know, what's presented, what have we got? We got what have we now We're Olympic Games now. So it's all these people who've Spent many years perfecting swimming or running or jumping. Put a lot of effort into it. Dedication into it. And it's clearly a big deal. And of all these countries in the world, most of them he's sending people who are going to compete in this Olympic Games. Wow. We just had a Euro Cup and we always got various matches and sports going on and people really charged up with somebody's hitting something or kicking a ball or jumping over something or throwing something or splashing around in the water and people are going crazy with excitement around it. This is really powerful, passionate stuff. You know, I think there's more people watched the England-Italy Euro final than actually voted for the last election. It's more important than the government. (laughs) And they think, well somebody won. You know, somebody's got the gold medal. The gold medal for running the fastest, you know, hundred meters ever. Gold medal, fantastic. No, it's not. I don't want to put the man down or the woman down who did it. Great. But more important to refrain from bad speech. <laughs> because it'd be much more for your welfare and benefit to cultivate harmlessness <laughs> and non intoxication. Sounds kind like of wet blanket, doesn't it? When you think about it, you know. I mean even the fastest person in the world can't run as fast as a jungle chicken. Really, a chicken can run faster than Usain Bolt, <laughs> so is a chicken going to win the Olympic Games? <laughs> he stands on the pedestal and flows all in his neck. <laughs> But no, I mean, uh, Usain Bolt and anybody could actually practice the eight precepts. It would be much more valuable because chickens can't do that. (laughs) And uh, if we did it, if everybody did that, made a practice of it, can you imagine what kind of world we'd be in? (laughs) No stealing, lying, (laughs) intoxication and so forth. The consequence of that would be vast much more worthy of tremendous praise and applaud applause than somebody winning, you know, the hundred meter sprint. Olympic games. You know, but what do you get? This is the big thing. This is fantastic. He's the fastest fastest person in the world. And you kinda Well well, good, yeah. Meanwhile, (laughs) you know war in Yemen, war in Syria. People are getting blasted here, blasted there, starving here, refugees there. Yeah. <laughs> Inequality here, starving there, lying here, fighting there, criminals here, criminals there. What did winning a gold medal in the games do for that? Nothing. Yeah. So, you know, you value these precepts These are worth more than gold. Gold isn't really very useful. It's just a piece of metal. So you make an effort around what you value most and what you concern yourself with most. What also you can you can do. You don't have to be that fantastic, you know, to stop. Killing, stealing, lying. Don't be that fantastic. And it really helps because then you you got that you realize what's there and you realise there is this Udu mind that hey, watch that, watch that. And this is really how the right view begins to crystallise into right mindfulness because one's mindfulness is always resting on that principle. What's worthy of being mindful of? Wrong mindfulness is we don't really have an axis, we just put attention onto whatever. Right mindfulness, you've got that axis of this one should be mindful of one's speech, one should be mindful of it, of what's skillful and unskillful in it, one should be mindful of one's actions, what's appropriate, inappropriate. With that, then you're really firming up a balanced way of life. Oh. Oh. and uh, the beauty of it is when that's the case you get the mind begins to relinquish you know, and the inner field the karmic field begins to settle you know, thoughts bubble up but you're not into them emotions well up but you're not into them you found this place which is a center and this is where samadhi happens because the mind drops into that or rests onto that that center, that balanced place begins to just drop what's not needed the word samma, it's interesting, there's another word samma which sounds very similar but it's, it's just one M if you write it in the Roman letters and samma I means something like it's a uh, refer to Indian music. It's a sign when things are just properly in tune. Samma. And you wonder whether the Buddha was a pretty nimble linguist and liked to play with words, whether somehow that word isn't also implied in samma. Samma is samma. Yeah. And samana is someone who's in tune, balanced. Not too tight, not too loose. Therefore, like a string of a lute, properly balanced, the right, gentle, steady sounds come from it. And one should cultivate like that. So, right effort. We use a word like effort, then most people imagine it already the word effort means like, whoa push, you know, weight lifting <laughs> or dragging heavy loads. Really lot of right effort. But the right effort is to maintain balance, where the unskillful factors are put aside, skillful factors are taken in and appreciated. Unskillful factors are known to be unskillful, put aside. Unskillful impulses are known as that. And put aside, skillful impulses are known as that felt, sensed, and this builds up, you know, your, your, your ways of behaving, you get affirmation through, through lingering in and feeling and centering in and, and collecting the good, the truthful, the loving, the gracious, the firm, the clear, you know, and it builds up. And then, so then you have right mindfulness because now you've got something to hold that kind of attention. The difference between mindfulness and attention, attention is just any old act of the mind that focuses on an object. You know, everybody, everybody has attention. You know, mindfulness is based upon an ethical sensitivity around what our attention is placed. Is it worthwhile? Is it useful? And it's got that sense in which it's steadying around what's bringing up positive, fruitful, calming, steadying results. And it also protects and discards and moves away from the mind away from unskillful actions so that you've really got a practice path is established through that imbalance mm. and imbalance means that um, with particularly the right effort you should always practice so that whatever you're doing whether you're chanting, walking, working talking a little bit of you is, is not acting it's listening so is the active and receptive you may think we want to make a whole hearted effort we'd be 100% active wouldn't recommend it yeah whenever i've been 100% active i've generally broken something <laughs> you know all right whoops <laughs> i was smashing a hole in the roof of chutter's house with a plank of wood being Complete, completely what I thought was right effort you know, let's get a hold of this piece of wood and, and bring it upstairs oops <laughs> the good intention was good but the balance wasn't there it's all do and not enough of sensitivity openness non-doing to you know Witness and moderate energy. Yeah, so this is very important to to remember because, by and large, the receptive aspect of uh, our lives is is pretty polluted. It's all you know. What's recommended is action: do things, get things done. Do things, get things done, and there's a certain hardness about that where you just. Can only get it done. Um, we lose receptivity to why we're doing, how we're doing, how we're behaving, how we're affecting others, because we're so getting this thing done. Uh, say what you want to say, get it out. You know? So the receptivity is minimal. It's all broadcast, not much receptive. Mm. And then the receptive element itself is just generally in the mainstream world there's always music playing something's thumping something's running in, there's a bleeper going off there's lights, there's traffic there's sounds, you sit down there's music playing You go to an airport there's music playing there's always something going on it means you can never just be openly receptive without being impacted with something to get you going <laughs> advertisements to get you triggered you know lights to tell you what to do music to get you thumping something to de- to delight you, you always your receptivity has been polluted by this um, by the medium so our activity is overcharged and um, insensitive at times and receptivity is clogged gets clogged and it's so important then to find those, to make a determination to find the times when you do, well first of all, switch everything off and you just listen to silence. Train, you know, sometimes it's difficult because people are so, you know, used to something happening the mind starts, oh I should be remembering this, do that, I'll get this done first of all, then I'll sit quietly, but right now I've got to do this and have I remembered that? And beep, 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 buzz goes off, bang, stop that thing oh, buy another one of these tomorrow, better make a note about, you know, stuff going on, just to stop. (laughs) Really, you know, and you can feel that turmoil. This isn't something to act upon, to engage with. This is something to, because within that, if you do pause and stop, Okay, find your body in all that. It's going to help you to find that upright axis again. And whatever you do, do with a mind that's also not doing. This is difficult too, because of course, as uh, like I said, most of us are trained to really do very well. Do quickly do effectively you know to get you know to get to the end of the sentence before we've begun it to get it worked out so I said you know and it gets extremely complex to move on and so with that we tip over into becoming throws us in there the the volition is not checked this this kind of uh so we do things with a mind of non-doing. You really set that mind up first of all because for sure something's going to happen it's never been the case that nothing happened as far as I can remember it's never the case that you sit quietly and nothing whatsoever happens (laughs) something's going to happen what you need to do is steer it Yeah. Uh, start with the mind of non-doing, and then bring up that quality. What would be what would be in line with? There is the value in giving, offering, sharing, sacrifice. There is the kindness. There is sensitivity. There is relinquishment. You set up these kind of suggestions of how, what kind of intention can come forth another aspect of right view there is this world, there is another world we tend to live in a very flat reality as if this sense world, that is it yeah. just what you see and hear, read, this is it what you can see through a microscope is it Mm. and this is another aspect of uh, wrong view mm. See, so, you know, there is what well, you can say, the first of all, is the world of one's own karma one's mental world, one's internal domain and dependent upon that there are whole stacks of different realities one can, the mind can enter such as the reality of jhana Uh, in meditation where certain sensory phenomena fade out and, and suddenly the world is very different there's mother and father there's a sense of being related to other people we don't just pop out of nowhere we've inherited positive, maybe negative causes and effects from other people we're in a human continuum we come embodied you know, we're born out of other people's bodies so we're in a very much you can't really cut out an individual for a, you know, cut out Because there's an inheritance, of course, in effects coming in from where we were brought up. There's also the ongoing inheritance in the sense world coming in, what's affecting it. So where do you end? Where do you begin and end? A friend of mine who lives in New Zealand, and he was pretty ill, uh, energy Extremely depleted energies, it's just just the condition he has. New Zealand was quite cool at this time of year, and he's feeling really down, you know. And then he, somebody gave him a ticket to Queensland in Australia, where it's tropical. And just being in a tropical country, his energy came back, his mind changed. Mind states changed. So there's no boundary, is there? You know, we're we're susceptible to changes in climate, food, um, history, um, other people's presence or absence. You know, you can't draw a line around an entity. Actually, there isn't one. (laughs) There's cause and effect in this field that extends and extends and extends. You don't really see the end of it. Where do you begin? Hmm? The language you use is not yours. The body you have was generated by other people. It's now being generated through food and water. The planet around you. We belong to that, the body belongs to this planet. Yet we tend to imagine that we can kind of walk around on top of it and the planet's down there and whatever. You know, I'm separate from it. And the other people are separate from me. It's impossible for a single human being to live without other people. You know, how many people would it take to get you born? At least, quite a few, I imagine. And fed, and educated, and clothed, all that, we're wearing cotton from Bangladesh or somewhere or the other, you know. And yet, the individual mind can think, "Oh well, no, I'm I'm, I'm an individual. Where do you draw the line? You know, <laughs> you're you're kind of a, you're a you're a kind of a a meeting point of all these forces. We tend to take it all so personally, and try to create something out of it that's special and mine and, and useful and better and you know, what are you talking about? Yeah. But what there is, is an upright sense and the karmic field in which perceptions of myself, perceptions of you, memories, hopes, wishes, fears, uncertainties of moving around sights and sounds and what they mean to me moving around stay upright in that don't push it away stay sensitive to it every inclination has an effect on that if you stay on that center, you know, stay in that center, this deepens into samadhi and uh, wisdom and release. Where, yeah, you know, it can be released from this field of becoming. This is a possibility. It's probably rarer than winning the Olympic Games. and and actually have far more significance far greater significance you know, whoever won the Olympic Games in 1952 we don't know, we don't care <laughs> who was the fastest woman in the world in 1978, who cares? <laughs> you know. but uh, the Buddha Recognizing this, realizing this, presenting this, teaching this, uh, sustain, establish a sustained, a steady path for humanity to be in as long as there are people who can listen to it, practice it. This is our occasion. Mm. And it's to be celebrated. Asala puja. Puja is a kind of celebration and honoring. But it's also, there's a certain, you know, gladness and gratitude that we have this kind of teaching and possibility. And from that we can extend, you know, goodwill and clarity across you know, whatever we contact and touch. Um, What else is there to do? You know, don't all of us want to feel that some way when we leave this life we we maybe did something useful or good? (laughs) And perhaps, you know, being the fastest athlete in the world wasn't that important. But maybe just being a loving, decent, truthful human being was extremely significant and it's something that other people can pick up and do and follow on and if that's cultivation, that's what's going to keep humanity afloat Uh, that's, that's the only hope we have that's the only hope we have if it doesn't you know it's very dark and this is something to be joyful for, to take responsibility for and to practice. So for this for your reflection this evening.